Welcome to the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. I'm Graham Richmond, and this is your Wiretaps for Monday, March 28th, 2022. I'm joined by Alex Brown from Cornwall, England. Alex, how are things going this week? Very good. Thank you, Graham. So what's <laughs> what's been going on in the MBA admissions world? I know it's been <laughs> we've just had so many people uh, coming to the site over the last week or so as decisions roll in and we're not done yet. Right. So give us a debrief on what's been happening and what we've got coming up. Yeah, I mean, this this last week um, and we're recording this right in the middle of the last week, um, Wharton and Kellogg, Booth, Haas, Texas, McCombs. Um, are, are all releasing decisions along with several other schools actually. Um, so so lots and lots of activity. Um, you know, hopefully lots of folks getting some great news um, and, and, and so forth. And then obviously this upcoming week, um, it's going to be as busy, maybe not in terms of the number of schools releasing decisions, but we've got Harvard and Stanford um, this upcoming week. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks will be sort of that are still in the running, obviously, with those programs. Um, we'll, we'll be very excited. Um, and we're also starting to get some of the round three application deadlines coming in. So as, as folks are starting to hear about those decisions, a few people might be taking a punt um, in round three, Graham. I, and, and I know we, um, there was an article that we ran on the site about, I think it was about Georgetown, who they also, you know, Georgetown and UCLA, I think were some other schools that released decisions last week. But I know that, um, you know, G- Georgetown was kind of, there was an article we did where their director of admissions was talking about round three being not a bad time to apply. And I, I know, again, I think volume's down a bit this year. So I think schools are like, hey, if you're a solid applicant and you get us an application in round three, there might be room for you. So we will see. I, I suspect schools are going to go to their wait lists pretty hard. And we've already seen some of that in terms of the round two decisions where round one waitlisters are converting. So we'll, we'll see how it <laughs> continues to play out. Um, Alex, over on the website, I don't know if you've been reading these. They, I, they're coming out faster than I can kind of keep, <laughs> keep track of them. But we had a, um, a few Real Humans uh, MBA alumni pieces. One was there's a, a Google product manager. I guess he works for Google Cloud AI. Uh, this guy named Ryan Hugh, who is an HBS grad from 21, so a very recent Harvard grad. He's from the Philippines originally, worked at McKinsey before business school, and now he's at Google, and he tells his story and kind of how he landed at Google. And he gave a great piece of advice. You know, we always ask these candidates when we're interviewing them to just, like, give, you know, give advice to someone who hasn't yet attended business school about what they might want to do to maximize their experience. And he said that he would recommend that current MBAs aim to learn from the experiences of their classmates. And I think it's something we, we talk about on the show, this idea of the really rich environment you're going to be in, in terms of people's breadth of experiences and, you know, everything they're bringing into the classroom. So um, Ryan was kind of underlining that in his piece, and it's just a good, good story to read. No, absolutely fantastic. And it's quite interesting, Graham, because I know you're going to talk to us a little bit about the career the the career piece on tech yes that we released last week yeah and and here's a an alum from harvard that's working at google whereas harvard's not known in terms of the percent of their class going into tech it's not a high number Mm -hmm. but clearly there's a lot of quality there Agreed. Yeah. So the other one, we had a guy named Alex McNair who works at Deloitte. Um, I think he's fairly senior there now because he graduated business school in 2018. He went to Emory 
And, and he had a really great piece of advice too, in which he said, target your search for a job and focus on the places you really want to work. People often fall into the trap of recruiting anywhere and everywhere just for the sake of doing so. And that's exhausting. So good advice there. I mean, this is something you always talk about, Alex, this idea of showing up on campus when you begin your MBA with a plan so that you don't get um, pulled in all these different directions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's super important. It really helps you focus your MBA experience and really enrich it in the places that really matter most to you. So have that plan. And yeah, no, that's really interesting that that's expressed yeah. um, by, by that alone. Yeah. And then the last one we did was a guy from who's in this um, program called the City, I guess, Citibank Management Associate Program, which is a I think it's kind of a rotational program for people kind of taking the making the pivot into finance. Um, this guy named Anoop Kinjav, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing it. I'm going to do my best, uh, Kinjav Dakar. Um, and he is a Cambridge judge graduate, uh, class of 20. So he's been out for a little bit now. And he you know, originally was in Singapore working in semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, he actually went to Nanyang Technological University, which is a really good school there for undergrad. Um, then he went and did his MBA at Judge, and you know now he's out on the other side pivoting from tech into finance, which is something we hear you know candidates expressing interest in. And you know we're always kind of like, how does that is that a, is that a move you can make? So I thought it was really cool to read his story. Um, and the thing that he said for his advice was he said, I wish that I'd been advised to consistently work on interview preparation from the very beginning of the MBA. So that's another thing, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, he goes on to talk about how, you know, you never know when these opportunities, elevator pitches or, you know, conversations with a recruiter are going to happen. And, and so being ready for that stuff, um, is important. And, and this is why I think a lot of, you know, top MBA programs do some work, um, in the kind of orientation period where they're really trying to, you know, the career office spends a day with people getting them into that mode. But another just interesting candidate that we profiled who's now out there working at City. So pretty cool. Where, 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 where is he working? Is he working in London? You know, I'm not sure. I'm guessing it's either, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to give the, give you the wrong answer. So right. I, I didn't, I didn't retain that information <laughs> when I read yeah. the post, but you're probably right. It's probably the UK, um, or it's possible maybe back in Singapore, but I don't, I don't know. So, um, but yes, definitely, I just thought it was interesting that they have this kind of rotational kind of program to push people into these different areas of, of finance and uh, probably great for someone without the background, right? So Yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to highlight over on the website is that we did this whole piece on top uh, MBA career placement outcomes. And as you said, it was on technology. And so we just looked at, you know, what percentage of candidates from a graduating class are going into tech, at least percent of those who are looking for a job, what percent are going into tech, and then also where they land. It was it was tricky to do the analysis because what we wanted to do was look at big tech. Um, do you know the companies that are in, when people, I learned this, like when people say big tech, they actually mean a specific set of companies, which I, um, somehow like that, I had flown under the radar on that one. Uh, but do you know what the companies are? There's five of them, I think. What are they, Graham? You want to guess? <laughs> All right. It's, uh, well, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft. So those are the five. And so we wanted to look at like, okay, of the tech placements, what percentage is going into big tech? 
um, just so we could see. But unfortunately, only a small handful of schools, I think there are about seven or eight of them that like give us that specific level of data, um, particularly when it comes to like, this is how many people we've sent off to Amazon or Google. So yeah, we I would love to see more transparency um, from the schools in terms of these placement outcomes. But it's kind of interesting to see, you know, what we did scrape out of the data there to kind of, you know, compare and contrast. No, very good. I suppose Facebook's changed its name to Meta. Yes, I'm supposed to. Yeah, sorry. It's supposed to be called Meta. Yeah. Yeah. So so for next season, it'll be Google, Amazon, Apple, Meta and Microsoft. I, I wonder what kind of acronym <laughs> folks will come up with for that. Yeah. Because we've got to love our acronyms. Yeah. And actually, Google, I guess, technically, we could be calling Alphabet, right? So I don't know. Yes. No, you're right. So it's, <laughs> it's three A's and two two M's. Yeah. So what um, would that be? Amama or something? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to come up with one. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, I, you know, the thing I would encourage people to look at, actually, that was somewhat interesting is that it turns out that a school like Duke, Fuqua, does a fantastic job of placing people with big tech. Um, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, percentage of the class that go into tech in the first place, and those going to places like Amazon and Google and stuff, they're they're doing really well. So is Kellogg. Um, there's some others. Obviously, there are some top schools that don't give us the granular data. Um, and then there are other programs that send a decent number of folks into tech, like, say, MIT Sloan. Um, it's not the top thing for them, but they send people there. But they don't send as many to big tech, so which leads me to believe they're sending more people into, uh, you know, bespoke uh, companies out there or maybe, you know, startups and, and things like that. So it's just interesting to see how these patterns vary from school to school. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting because, you know, we've done these pieces on finance. We've done them on consulting. And they're clearly sort of industries that MBAs had, had looked to toward for, you know, several years and decades. Yeah. So they're quite mature industries, well understood and so on and so forth. Whereas tech is an emerging trend over the last five to 10 years. So I just don't think it's as, as sort of formalized yet in terms of, right. um, you, you know, with consulting, we know it's MBB and then the rest. With, with, with finance, it's buy side versus sell side. In tech, is it big tech versus bespoke? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what is, what is the line of delineation that says, yes, that's high quality and that's regular tech? Yeah, and I, had to, I have to chuckle because when I was in business school and the sort of dot-com boom was happening, you know, people were leaving business school often to join unknown companies, you know, or very tiny, you know, or starting their own thing, right? Um, but I remember there was a lot of rhetoric around, yes, Amazon existed and some of the others, but there was, at that point, those companies were kind of getting famous for saying, well, we don't need MBAs. Like, yeah. why, why would we hire MBAs? And that's completely <laughs> uh, changed, you know, but it's just interesting how the, yeah, how the landscape has shifted. And you're right, this is still evolving and we'll kind of see <laughs> how it continues to do so. Pets.com didn't need any MBAs, right? No, that didn't serve them very well though, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. Um, so the only other stuff I had to share before we get into the candidates that you have selected for this week is that we ran a, a, a kind of bonus podcast episode with a guy who used to write cases for Harvard Business School. Um, his name's J James Quinn. He's, he's also a Yale SOM grad, so he has an MBA. And I just wanted him to uh, walk us through like what is a case um, what is a business case? 
How are they used in the MBA classroom? Because they are used at really every leading MBA program. Obviously, some schools like Harvard or Darden use them almost exclusively, and other schools it's just sort of here and there. But it's something that we wanted our listeners who are heading off to business school to know about and to be ready for because it is a different style of learning. And so he was terrific, and I encourage people to tune in and listen to that if you want some tips to hit the ground running when you arrive on campus next fall. I would like to say we have some reviews to read out or or fan mail or email, but there's nothing. Although we do have a T-shirt project in the works, Alex, which I I think you're aware of, but we're we're working on some, uh, yeah, some clear admit wiretaps gear that may be uh, coming soon. So we'll we'll keep everyone posted on that front. (laughs) No, I'm I'm excited for that. But let me get back to this cases podcast that you did, Graham. Did did your 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 um, presented? Did did they talk about the rationale for? using cases versus more traditional lecturing and and so on and so forth and what the true value is and why Harvard and like you say Darden almost exclusively use that methodology. Yeah, I mean he did talk about this idea that if you, you know, the, the cases are real, so there so there's this sort of experiential um, element to them where you're getting to kind of really understand what happened in a real situation. And he talked about developing, I think he used this term like muscle memory around decision making and how you know, that the, the real world is complicated. Cases come with all kinds of like extraneous information that you have to we you know, kind of wade through um, to kind of arrive at a possible solution in the given case. And, and yeah, so he talked a lot about why this method is quite valuable. Um, obviously, it's debatable in terms of, you know, some schools think it's got to be combined with other teaching methods, but it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a believer in the case method. Like, you know, I went to a school that, you know, probably was like, what, 30% cases in the classroom. And I thought it was really useful as a tool. I don't know that, you know, I, I don't know what it would be like. You, you, you avoided a school that has near a hundred percent case studies. <laughs> but that wasn't <laughs> why, <laughs> although, yeah. So I couldn't tell you what it's like to do all cases, but, but no, it was an interesting discussion and yeah, you should give it a listen when you get a chance. No, fantastic. And I, how many case studies will you do as a student at Harvard? Is It's in the hundreds, right? Oh, yeah. it's Yeah. And what's cool is that you're doing all of your classmates are doing them all. And so it makes for good, you know, dinner conversation. I mean, you can literally people talk about this stuff. They've all read the same cases. And, and so it's useful. And I think they do a good job of keeping them contemporary, you know, making sure they're not just talking about old stuff. And um, yeah, so so it, it's an interesting um, piece of the MBA kind of landscape and one that I want our listeners to know about. Very good. Very good. So, you know, again, we got no fan mail, no reviews. So please write to us. Alex and I are feeling um, neglected. So or, or write a review, you know, let, let us know what you think. Um, otherwise, Alex, I think we can get into our candidates for this week, unless you had anything else you wanted to share. <laughs> Let's kick on. All right. So this is Wiretaps candidate number one. So we have a, an apply wire entry, and this candidate wants to start business school in the fall of 23. They've got Duke, Harvard, Chicago, and Yale on their target list. And they've been working in kind of what they describe as marketing operations. And after the uh, MBA, they want to get into technology or maybe nonprofit social impact type work. They have a GMAT score of 710, a GPA of 3.6. And they've got five years of work experience to date. They're located in Salt Lake City, Utah. And they did share with us that they worked full-time throughout undergrad, which they pursued at a state university. They said they have a lot of volunteer experience, um, both currently and while they were in school. And they also pointed out they spent two years on a church mission in France. 
So that's kind of the basics. They did share some really cool uh, kind of information about their job. And I'll let you kind of speak to that, Alex, as you assess them here. But what do you make of this candidacy? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really strong candidate in my book. So let's break down some of the reasons why I would suggest that. Um, They they work full time through their undergraduate studies. So obviously, you know, that that was a bit of a constraint for them having to work through undergrad. Despite that, they got a 3.6 GPA. They did a lot of sort of volunteer experience through through their school um, and and so on and so forth to join school. So it seems like they managed their time really well, did really well and sort of almost bootstrapped that experience, um, obviously. So to me, that shows that they're, they're a striver. They've made the most of their opportunity where they were at that time in their, in their life and, and have, have done very well. So when they graduate from there, unlike graduating from, let's say, an Ivy League institution or whatever, they probably didn't have all the top recruiters coming to campus. It's a state school. But it seems, again, to me that they've gone on and done very well in their career, the opportunities that they have. And they state that they're currently a senior manager of a team of six at a mid-sized publicly traded company. They've had a couple of promotions. They're going to get great recs from folks that, that really highly regard them and so on and so forth. So, you know, and they've done this sort of mission work. And, and we see these types of candidates that often are very appealing to um, to, to, to top tier programs, quite frankly, Graham. Um, so I say there's a super lot to like here. This GMAT is 710, right? So the GMAT is also very good in the grand scheme of things, you know, relative to regular applicants. But I would challenge this candidate and say, is 710 your best score? If you think with additional prep, you can nudge it up by 20 points, just do it. Because everything else is so super interesting and strong that this candidate belongs, I would argue, based on the limited information that we have at the very top school. So, you know, they're they're targeting um, Fuqua, HBS, Booth and Yale School of Management, which is a really nice sort of, um, you know, range of schools, even if it's a short list. But I would absolutely throw in Wharton, Kellogg, with a focus on marketing, Ross also, just to sort of make sure that they, they, you know, do have options. But, you know, this person really should be targeting the very best grade. Yeah, I, you know, my big question marks with this candidate were, uh, you know, the, the goals. I want to know more about what they want to do and where they want to do it. But I do agree with you that I think the richness of experience they have both you know, working, you know, at this, in this marketing function. I mean, they mentioned they're what added about $17 million per year, um, in their, in their efforts at work in terms of revenue to the company. So I, I feel like, you know, it'd just be good to know what do they want to do afterwards and where, yeah. um, because yeah. And then the other thing was just back to the GMAT, the cynic in me says, okay, they went to a state school. They're not saying 
they didn't say that it was a really good state school or anything. So let's assume it's not a kind of, you know, uh, what do they call it? A, a public Ivy type state school or something, you know, it's just kind of a run of the mill state school. Well, what happens is you look at that three, six and you say, wow, they worked and they had a lot of things they were juggling, but I think you still kind of mentally might discount the three, six a little bit if it's not from a very top school. And so I, I just worry that when you then what happens sometimes to me is the GMAT colors the perception of the GPA. So someone goes to a school that's like out of this world difficult and you know has like no grade inflation and they somehow pull off a, you know, 3.8 and then they take the GMAT and they get a 7.70. You say, aha, you know, this makes total sense. They went to a great school or a great student and of course they ace the GMAT. But the same thing happens in the opposite direction. And so I, I just, yeah, if they have time and have only taken the test once or something, I would absolutely look to boost that score because the first thing I made a note to myself was like, wow, if this was like a 730 or a 750, boy, it'd be Harvard or bust kind of territory, you know, and, and I, I just feel like, yeah, they're, they might sell themselves a little bit short if they don't do that. And the last thing I was going to say is they went on this mission to France, which is kind of interesting as well. Grant, it was for their church. Um, and so we, you know, we talked, I think, last episode a little bit about religion, or at some point we talked about that. But it, it just sounds like it could have been a really interesting experience that adds some color to their candidacy, too. So there's a lot to like here. I just want to make sure that they don't get saddled a little bit by a, but what would be a below-average GMAT score at the schools they're targeting right now. Yeah, I think we're both on the same page here, Graham. Right now, everything looks really good. If, if they could up the GMAT, that puts them perhaps at a different level. And you correctly point out, just focus on making sure those goals are well articulated. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, lots of super potential here. Yeah, agreed. Um, so, you know, I want to thank that person for sharing their profile. They are fortunate in that they have some time to kind of work on things as they head into the application season. But yeah, thanks a lot for that. Let's move on now and talk about Wiretap's candidate number two. So this is another ApplyWire entry, except that this candidate is probably not going to start business school until 2025, and that's because they're a deferred, a deferred enrollment candidate. So they're um, looking at Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Chicago Booth, and Wharton, and they're basically a college senior. They already know that they're going to be heading into a job at Microsoft in product management. They, after business school, are thinking that they would probably stay in tech or maybe get into VC or entrepreneurship. Obviously, it's all a bit <laughs> foggy at this point since it's a long ways off. They um, have a GMAT score of 750 and a GPA of 3.95. Yes, you heard me right. <laughs> they are located in the U.S. They don't say where. And they want to land in New York or San Francisco after business school. They went into a whole uh, kind of discussion about college internships they'd had. They've also talked about how they, you know, their plan is to, you know, apply deferred enrollment to the very best schools. If it doesn't work out, they'll work at Microsoft as planned anyway, and then apply down the road to business school via the sort of traditional path. The only other thing that they shared is that they went to a top 10 undergraduate institution where they double majored in philosophy and computer science. They also had a businessy minor. I don't know what they mean by that. Maybe econ, hard to say. And they are, uh, they mentioned they're Caucasian and Jewish. They said they're not sure that that is relevant though. Uh, this is a male candidate. Again, th that's the background. What do you, what do you make of this? I mean, knowing what we know about deferred enrollment candidates and, and the expectations for that crowd, what do you make of this? Yeah, I guess the, this week I picked two outstanding candidates because at the end of the day, um, I love, you know, what this candidate's done. I mean, they're, they're, um, 
obviously deferred candidates, so they're still in their undergrad, but they've done so super well in in you know what they've done they've got the, the the right gmat score they've got the right gpa i mean we talked about it before we came on air i mean that combination of computer science and philosophy is really interesting um you know they they've been busy on campus doing really good stuff that's really important their internships look like they've been very good that's really important they're a product manager graduating um, at microsoft mm. i will make you a background Microsoft will change its name because Google has and Facebook has. And Microsoft does more than just spreadsheets anymore. <laughs> I wonder, you know, I mean, Apple hasn't changed their name. <laughs> yeah, but Apple is quite product focused on what it does. Yeah, true. Microsoft owns gaming brands, owns a whole bunch of other stuff, LinkedIn. I mean, it's about time they change their name. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. I'm just making a bet within the next, within the calendar year, they will change their name. All right. But we talked about this is big tech. They're going into big tech as a product manager. That's got to be an, an experience that lots of programs like and seek and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, without boring the detail, they hit every marker that a deferred um, candidate needs to hit, i.e., Show leadership on campus, do really well in your undergraduate studies, do well in your internships, have a focused plan and goal and narrative. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing check, 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 check. So that's all um, very good. And I do like their application strategy, right? They're applying to maybe five deferred programs. If they don't get an, an admit at Harvard or, and or Stanford, that's sort of their, their, their real sort of um, dream, as it were. Um, then in two or three years' time, they can reapply to Harvard and Stanford to, to take a second attempt there, whilst hopefully still having a deferred admit in their pocket from, from um, whether it's Wharton, Sloan or, or Booth or whatever it might be. So I think they've even thought through their application strategy, I think, in a very sort of smart way. Yeah, agreed. Uh, everything, yeah, as you said, everything lines up and we won't get into all the details, but they did share a lot of information about, you know, where they've done their internships and what kinds of campus activities they're involved in. I would encourage them to go back. I think they're available somewhere on our website and watch some of the deferred enrollment events we've done with schools where we ask schools what deferred enrollment candidates often do wrong in their applications and, you know, just some tips and things about how to approach the essays. And we did a whole series. Um, I think there was, there was sort of a series of two different deferred enrollment events. One was a kind of general primer and the other one was really into the nitty gritty on tackling the application and stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of good insights out there. And we, we actually have a whole page on the website devoted to deferred enrollment and just making sure that you don't fall into any of those pitfalls that that we see younger candidates sometimes doing. But again, this person, I have no reason to believe that they're not very well lined up. So they're just going to have to get, get down to business on these applications and, and get them in. Cause I think most of them have deadlines in the coming weeks here in April. Right. So yeah, so that's going to be important to get those in. No, very good. Great advice. All right. So let's move on and talk about wiretaps candidate number three. So this final candidate for this week's episode is a decision wire entry, as we've been doing now for many weeks. I love, I love pouring over these, you know, dilemmas that our candidates on the site face. This candidate is, of course, undecided. They applied to Dartmouth, Michigan, MIT, Kellogg, NYU, Darden, 
I think that's it. That's the school list. And they, you know, they're going to start this fall. And they got offers from Michigan with a $20,000 scholarship and from Darden with no money. They also told us that they uh, are waitlisted at Tuck, MIT, and Kellogg. <laughs> and that they are as yet to hear from NYU Stern. So, I, you know, the post-MBA, they want to do consulting. The companies they have on the list are Bain, McKinsey, uh, BCG, Deloitte, and AT Kearney, which I think just goes by Kearney now. GMAT score was a whopping 760, and the GPA a 3.8. This candidate is in New York, and they indicate that you know they want to work in consulting, but ideally in the DC or Delaware, Maryland, Virginia area, because their spouse works there. And their dilemma comes down to the, oh, I've got 20 grand from Ross. They seem to like the culture at Ross but Darden is closer to that, to where their spouse is and where they want to work. They did mention that they're scared of Darden's boot camp reputation and that Ross seems more, quote, chill. <laughs> so Alex, what do you make of this? Like, what, I mean, obviously we have the dilemma at hand about what do they choose between Darden and Ross, but I also want to talk about the bigger picture about these wait lists and the rest of their candidacy. But, but yeah, what, where, get, get us started here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up the two main sticking points here. Um, so we could discuss them one at a time. Let's talk about Darden first, because, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to quiz you a little bit about this um, podcast that you recently did on case studies is to get to this very point. Um, and, and the quote, and I think you said this, but I'll just repeat it from, from the candidates, I'm primarily scared of Darden's boot camp reputation. What what do they mean by that, Graham? And do you think it's a fair reputation? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the school has a reputation. I mean, obviously, recruiters love the school because the kids, the students, sorry, graduating from the program always get high marks in terms of their abilities and things. But it does have a reputation as being pretty academically rigorous. And that, I think, is in part due to their heavy reliance on the case method. You cannot go into the classroom without having read the case that you're going to discuss in class, or you really risk looking like a complete fool. And the same is true at Harvard. And so there's a certain rigor that's sort of just required when you're in a case method-based program. I think also Darden just has this reputation as, you know, having a little more homework and stuff, but it also has a reputation as being a super close-knit, supportive community, much, you know, you hear the same thing about, say, Dartmouth or Cornell or any of these kind of more, uh, I don't know, small town or rural located MBA programs that are small. So I, I, I don't know. I think th it's true. I mean, that reputation does exist. I've heard it many a time, but I think that, you know, I've also heard a lot of people say that a great time at Darden. So it just, you know, you're going to get the degree to learn. And so why not <laughs> dive in and learn? But that, so that's where that comes from, Alex. That, right. That's my, my background on it. And, and, and the other sort of um, point to that is, and we see this with some of the, the candidates that we profile, is maybe this is an opportunity to get outside the comfort zone a little bit and be challenged um, a little bit more in terms of sort of integrating into that particular um, culture. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, Graham, if that's the sticking point, given everything else that we know, and we don't know a lot, but everything else that we do know, I, the, the spouse's location and, and their goals for consulting and so on and so forth, Darden has to be the choice 
that's on the table at present. Would you agree? I mean, as much as Ross is tempting, especially with the $20,000, and, and I think, you know, these are kind of pure schools, right? There's mm. not, it's not like an obvious thing where you'd say, oh, no, you know, Ross or Darden, one is better than the other. I mean, they're, they're pure schools, I would argue. Yeah. So, but given that they want to be in the D.C. area, it's hard to look away from the strength of that UVA network. And yeah, yeah. so and also, I mean, th they could probably see their spouse more easily <laughs> while they're while they're in the MBA program, too. So there's there's a lot of factors there. I would encourage them to go. I think a lot of these schools are going to do in-person welcome events for the first time in a couple of years now. So I would encourage this person to get onto these campuses and see what they think up close, if possible, um, if they're going to do those you know, welcome type events this spring. Not every school is doing them in person, so they'll have to investigate that. But I would encourage them to do that. The thing that I was struck by when I looked at this candidate, I was like, wait, 760, 38, and they're waitlisted at yeah. Tuck, Sloan, and Kellogg. And I'm, I'm not really figuring out how that happened. I'm obviously, I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. I don't know, you know, maybe they're really light on work experience or maybe they, you know, I don't know, maybe there wasn't perfect execution on the essays or something. I don't know. But I was a little surprised by that. I don't know if you feel the same. Yeah, they could be from an overrepresented population too and so on and so forth. But this is a really interesting question because what we are starting to see on Livewire it's quite a few folks coming off wait lists. And that correlates well with the fact that the app pool is down this year in terms of our understanding um, and so on and so forth. So there's going to be some wait list movement. Um, and this this candidate's currently on the Sloan, Kellogg, um, I think Stern wait list, but certainly Sloan and Kellogg, which would be in a tier... And Tuck, Tuck. And Tuck, sorry. Yeah, Stern they haven't heard from. And and but but Sloan and Kellogg for sure is going to be in a tier above Darden, right? Right. So the question is, what should they be doing to try to get off those wait lists? Now, there's two reasons why schools wait list candidates, right? In in a broad sense. On the one hand, the candidate just didn't quite make the cut for whatever reason, or there was just some sort of missing piece of the puzzle in their candidacy that they, they, they're going to need to shore up to, um, to, 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 to then get themselves admitted. And, and hopefully this candidate's got the appropriate self-awareness to identify if that's the case for them and what that piece might be and, and to try to improve and, and sort of work that way, this, certainly at Kellogg and, and Sloan. But the second aspect might be at play too, Graham. Maybe that this candidate is so super strong across the board, at least their numbers are, and we know that, that's what we know in this, in this entry, that these other programs aren't sure that, given an offer that this, this candidate's, you know, stated enough that they would accept the offer, right? So the fit and the, and the why Sloan or the why Kellogg, just make sure that that's, absolutely front and center and addressed um that's important too i hate it if they are in that second bucket but i do know some schools play that game um but yeah they should work the waitlist too graham to see if there are other options for them down the road current options i think darden swings it because of proximity to where they want to work post mba and their spouse and their partner but but they really need to look at these waitlists yeah i could not agree more i think that they owe it to themselves to just, yeah, see if they can pursue 
at any, I would argue at any of the three where they're currently waitlisted. So, you know. And, and why didn't they apply to Wharton? Yeah, it's interesting. Given Mid-Atlantic. I mean, if they want to be in that area. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it is a little bit of a head scratcher. Yeah. Um, maybe they wanted a small, close-knit type setting. Although, yeah, I guess all the schools on their list are a little bit small, except for Kellogg, which is, you know, more, not as big as Wharton, but on the bigger side, I guess. But yeah. Yeah, but... Maybe take a flyer in round three at war. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. So in any event. But they better be quick. I think that's next week. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in any event, I, I hope that everything works out for this candidate. But I do agree that, you know, for now, it's probably Darden or at minimum go to the welcome events and see what they really think up close instead of, you know, going on myth and rumor or whatever people, you know, typically say <laughs> about these schools. And then in the meantime, yeah, I would get in some, you know, waitlist, uh, you know, uh, communications with Kellogg and, and Sloan and, and maybe even Tuck. So yeah. Uh, yeah, best of luck to that person. Alex, thanks for picking these out. As always, you've kind of honed in on some candidates that allow us to talk about really good general uh, MBA admissions lessons. So that's terrific. And uh, we'll do it all in one week's time if you're willing. And I did want to remind everyone to please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen and, you know, shout it from the rooftops, tell anyone, you know, we'd love to have uh, more folks tuning in. That's our goal. And yeah, really appreciate everyone who listens week in and week out. And Alex, I'll see you next week. Very good. Take care, everyone. Stay safe.